Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the UK's impending general election. Boris Johnson was finally successful in closing down this parliament, taking the country for a pre-Christmas election on December the 12th. We'll be digging into the first few days of campaigning, the standing of all the parties, and in particular, the role the Brexit party might play. Plus, we'll be discussing the striking number of moderate conservatives who are leaving politics this election, and why so many women are leaving the front line too. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, political correspondent Laura Hughes and deputy editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. You could also leave us a nice review. So finally, Britain is heading to the polls. On the final of three attempts to force a general election, Boris Johnson brought to an end this deadlocked parliament with a one-clause bill. The campaign will decide the fate of Brexit, but it's a huge risk for the Prime Minister. The Tories might be 15 points ahead in the poll, but so was Theresa May when she called an election two and a half years ago. Could it all backfire for the Prime Minister and could Labour somehow eventually triumph? George Parker, let's begin with how we actually got to this election, because that's quite important about the standing of where all the parties are here, that Boris Johnson had his new Brexit deal, he tried to pass it through Parliament and actually had a vote in principle on his deal, but not on the timetable to deliver it. And essentially, the Prime Minister threw his toys out of the pram, said, no, not doing this, we're going to have an election. And they introduced this one-clause bill that amazingly got the support of the Liberal Democrats, the SNP and even Labour. Yes, well, I think the die was cast on October the 22nd when they had the second reading vote, as you say, on Boris Johnson's deal. It passed with a majority of 30, but then they lost the subsequent vote on the so-called programme motion, which was the motion to ram the bill through Parliament in breakneck speed in three days. And at that point, a big decision was taken in Downing Street, which was, do we soldier on with the bill and risk the possibility that we are subject to a a winter war of guerrilla attacks in Parliament, sapping defeats, timetable being stretched out and the possibly fatal possibility to Boris Johnson that he'd have to ask for another Brexit extension beyond the new one of January the 31st. So a whole load of risks there versus the highly risky alternative strategy, which is the one he's adopted, of going for a general election in an extremely volatile period with the polls moving around all over the place and with the country bitterly divided. And in the end, he chose the latter over the former. But it's a huge gamble. It is kind of a bit weird, Robert Swimsley, because... The programme motion which sets out the terms of debate for the Brexit withdrawal agreement, he wants to ram it through in three days, which was absurd for such a huge and consequential piece of legislation. But there was a deal to be done that Jeremy Corbyn said they could agree to a longer programme motion. I think even if it had been a week or so, it probably would have gone through at that point. And yes, as George said, there was a risk the bill could have been amended and pulled apart by the Commons. But there was a general view that people were happy to try and get this thing done. But instead, Boris had just said, nope, not doing that. We're going for an election. 
Yeah, I think there were two factors here. I was talking to a cabinet minister about this the other day, and they said, you're all massively understating how difficult it was going to be once we lost the programme motion. As George said, the degree of guerrilla warfare that was going to happen, there would have been a new Ben Act to make sure that we didn't crash out after January the 31st. Boris would have taken defeat after defeat. There would have been more amendments than you realised. It would have been appalling. And he would have just been made to look weaker and weaker and weaker. And another delay would have been catastrophic. Furthermore, if he'd had to accept certain amendments to the bill, which a dispassionate view would say, well, that's OK, because they're the future state, the Brexit party would use it to club him and say he would betrayed Brexit. And in the end, it was a much bigger risk for them than people are giving credit. And those who say you could just drive the bill through... The Tory position was, actually, we couldn't. Parliament was going to find new ways to sabotage it and we simply couldn't take the risk. And there was one other factor weighing on Boris Johnson's mind, which was if this was allowed to drag on until 2020, there was a risk from Downing Street's point of view that Labour would somehow replace Jeremy Corbyn's leader and bring in a new leader, a new face at the start of 2020. And that would have been disastrous from number 10's point of view as well. So the government adopted this idea that came from the Liberal Democrats and the SNP to have a one-clause bill that specified an election date. The Liberal Democrats and the SNP and Labour all wanted to have December the 9th, but after a bit of parliamentary wrangling, Georgia ended up on being December the 12th there. And it was really a tidal effect because the Lib Dems and the SNP proposed this over the weekend and then the government essentially adopted the same bill with a different exit date and the SNP sort of said they would go along with any election date and there were efforts to amend the bill to change change the date to include EU nationals and votes for 16 and 70 years in the franchise. But it just sort of snowboarded. And before we knew it, the bill had passed and that's it. We're off to the polls. Yes, exactly. Well, I think you mentioned the SNP and Liberal Democrats being the architects of this. And the interesting thing is of all the parties, the people who are most enthusiastic about a pre-Christmas election are the Liberal Democrats and the SNP. The Liberal Democrats, because Brexit won't have happened, that focuses attention on their principal message in this election, which is to reverse Brexit full stop. And the SNP, who obviously have an anti-Brexit message as well, with the added complication, there's a court case coming up against Alex Salmon, the former party leader, in January. So they were keen to get on with it. Number 10 saw a chance of latching onto this Lib Dem SNP proposal. And the Labour Party, having opposed an early election repeatedly, suddenly thought to themselves there was a bigger risk for them here in being seen to continue to run scared of the voters, knowing this would be the first line on the attack leaflets of all their opponents of the election. So in the end, reluctantly, they went along with it. But you could see the party was really nervous about this. I think over 100 Labour MPs either abstained or didn't take part in the vote. I think 11 MPs actually voted against an early election. And I was speaking to one Labour MP who said, we're going to be marmalised. And the Labour are not the only party, Robert, who are very nervous about this, that yes, Boris Johnson decided that an election was the lesser gamble than trying to get through his deal. But there's lots of people I've spoken to in the Cabinet and in the Conservative Parliamentary Party who are really unsure about this and felt it was unnecessary and think that it may become a case of 2017 all over again where that was meant to be a Brexit election and this will become a non-Brexit election and become about public services and all sorts of other things and Boris could quickly find himself on the back foot. Yeah, and I think they're right to be nervous. I think it's a really, really high-risk strategy. And I was saying something the other day, if plan A was to get the bill through and this is plan B, I really would hate to have seen plan C because it's a monumental risk. There's almost only one way this can go right and so many ways that it can go wrong. He has to stay way ahead of Labour in the opinion polls. Labour have to stay way down in the 20s, which I don't think anybody thinks they will. He has to keep the conversation continually focused on Brexit, which is going to find very hard to do. Labour have got a lot of policies and a lot of areas that are going to appeal to voters. He's got the Brexit party on his outer flank as well. It's a really, really huge risk that he has taken. And the consequences of this risk are enormous. 
He has to win outright. There is no other pathway for him. There is no coalition partner left for him having betrayed the DUP on his deal. So anything short of a majority or very, very close to one, and he's lost. And with that, he becomes the shortest serving prime minister in the last hundred years, the third shortest serving prime minister ever. And it's almost certainly the end of Brexit or any kind of Brexit that the Tories or the Brexit party believe in, because if they are out of power, you're going to have a coalition which is in favour of second referendum. And that second referendum is not going to have no deal on the ballot paper. It's going to be Remain versus a new deal negotiated by that coalition, which is likely to have at least a customs union in it, maybe the Norway option. Maybe they'll throw in votes for 16-year-olds as well. So if the Tories lose this election, it is bye-bye Brexit, as we have understood it for the last year. And you year. can chuck into that bye-bye the union possibly as well, because yeah, there are exactly. consequences that the SNP demand from Labour as a price for their support second referendum in Scotland on independence, which could easily in the current situation go for yes this time. So at the beginning of the campaign, the Tories are pretty far ahead. They're on about 41% and Labour on about 24%. And the sense, Robert, in Tory strategy circles is that if Labour gains up to above 30%, then it's in hung parliament territory because there's so much churn between the different parties and voters are going all over the place, particularly from 2017 to now, but also going further back. And the other thing is Boris has to have a commanding lead in the post. If there was an election tomorrow, I think we all agree there would be a comfortable, if not huge, Tory majority, but the campaign has barely begun. And if we look at how it's begun so far, we've heard very little from the Conservatives. They've been on the back foot so far, particularly to do with issues with Donald Trump, the NHS will come on to. But Labour had their launch and Jeremy Corbyn is never the world's best speaker. But I actually thought the speech he gave on Thursday when he kicked off their campaign in Battersea was one of his slightly better ones. Yeah, I don't think it matters very much that the Tories haven't officially launched it. This is a long campaign and people are going to be heartily sick of it and have seen quite enough of them by the time we get to December the 12th. So whether they launched on Thursday or whether they launched next week, I don't think matters very much at all. And a lot of the things that happen in these first few days will be forgotten. So I think that probably doesn't matter too much. But we're saying the Tories are starting in this commanding position. They're 1% lower than Theresa May was when she finished the last election. So an awful lot of things can go wrong. And 41% is not enough if any of the other parties start rising. I think they are in a difficult campaign and it isn't necessarily going to go as well as they want. But one thing I would caution is that the national polls are not fantastically helpful here. They're useful in the sense of showing the gap. They're useful in the sense of showing the direction. If we start seeing the gap closing, we'll see who's doing better. But this election is going to be one constituency by constituency in different seats and where the Tories target and where they're able to succeed and where they lose. So I think the national polls they're nice to look at, but that's not going to be the real story here. Hmm. George, let's have a look at Labour's message they've started off with, which they've mirrored very much what they did in 2017, which is to talk about a rigged system, a rigged elite, which is actually very Donald Trump-esque language. And the approach they've taken is similar to the US president as well, that in the launch of their campaign, they singled out some big individuals, uh, businessman Mike Ashley, Jim Ratcliffe, Rupert Murdoch, the Duke of Westminster, a big landowner in London, as examples of this rigged system. And a trying to do the us versus them, the 99% versus the 1% sort of thing. But the thing I've also been particularly struck with is this message on the NHS, because they're saying if you let the Tories in, they're going to do a deal with Donald Trump and they're going to sell off the NHS. Now, it's not true because the Conservatives have said over and over again, we will not have put the NHS on the table. It will not be part of a free trade deal. But Labour keeps saying it and the Tories are clearly very concerned about it. Well, you say it's not true, but it depends what you mean by putting the NHS on the table. Of course, there was a Channel 4 dispatches 
programme last month which showed that British officials were talking to US officials about drug pricing in the NHS. And this is a key demand of US pharmaceutical companies that they can sell the medicines into the NHS at a higher price. And it will be one of the key demands of Donald Trump in a trade negotiation, as will agricultural access to the British market. Now, if the British government persists in saying the NHS isn't on the table and we're going to maintain our high food standards, there frankly won't be a trade deal with the United States, which is the number one economic goal or sort of prize of Brexit, if you like. So there is a problem here. And for the first time, you know, we're actually talking about the detail of a trade deal. And Labour doesn't want to talk about Brexit in this campaign at all, but they will talk repeatedly about the implications of what happens next if Boris Johnson succeeds. So whether it's letting rapacious US corporations run the health service in their view, or a story that the FT broke the other day about the possibility that we might consider varying our labour market standards, possibly deviating from the European norm. Again, those are the kind of Brexit issues that the Labour Party will want to talk about. And the Sunday Times had a leak of the grid, the master plan for the campaign. And Labour only wanted to talk about Brexit on two days out of the full campaign. And it shows you how they want to steer the whole thrust of their message. Robert, let's talk briefly about the Brexit party because they also have launched their campaign on Friday and there was a lot of speculation that Nigel Farage might stand down and not run candidates across the whole country and he's sort of keeping it in the air for the moment but it does look increasingly as they are going to contest nearly all of the seats in England, Scotland and Wales, not Northern Ireland. And this is a big problem for the Conservatives because Sir John Curtis, who the veteran poster, said the most important person in this election is not Jeremy Corbyn, it's Nigel Farage, because if he did stand aside, which it doesn't look like he's going to, then it would make it a lot easier for Boris Johnson to get a majority in this election. I'm not actually convinced yet that he is going to contest all these seats. What happened on Friday is he essentially said to Boris Johnson, I'm giving you two weeks come into line and do a deal with me, a deal that Boris Johnson simply cannot do, or I'm going to run everywhere and ruin your electoral chances. He is running a shakedown, which for two weeks is going to keep him at the centre of the political conversation, which also, let's face it, he likes. He did a radio interview with Donald Trump, which also kept him at the centre of the conversation. So Nigel Farage is going to enjoy his two weeks in the limelight, but he also faces an agonising choice, which is going to be truly telling of the man, which is this. It is a simple fact that if the Conservatives lose the election... He has lost Brexit as he wants it. It is that simple. And if he stands in a way that destroys the Conservative Party in the election, he is going to cost himself what is purportedly his life's work. So if he does it, we know that what he's really all about is just keeping himself in the limelight and keeping his radio, etc. career going. He is desperate. And I thought that launch actually, rather than being highly defiant, showed him desperate for a deal to try and find a way to not stand in all the constituencies, to stand in maybe a 100 or so, enough to keep him in the debates, enough to keep him relevant, but not enough to wreck Brexit. And he is just going to ramp up the pressure for the next two weeks on Boris Johnson to cave and do some kind of deal with him. Yes. And as Robert says, there is no way the deal can be done because the price of any deal would be Boris Johnson abandoning his Brexit withdrawal agreement, which is not going to happen. And in addition, for Conservative candidates to stand aside in large parts of the country, which means the Conservative Party would cease to be a national party and they would be portrayed accurately by their opponents as being in the pocket of Nigel Farage. It would be a disastrous strategy. So I tend to agree with Robert. There's a lot of bluff and bluster going on here. It'd be interesting to see whether Nigel Farage himself stands for Parliament. I think it's for the seventh or eighth time unsuccessfully. But for the time being, 
he will keep the pressure on. And it's interesting to hear Ian Duncan Smith, a former Conservative leader this week, saying that the Conservative Party is the Brexit Party now. Obviously, having only one Brexit Party in this election would be hugely advantageous to Boris Johnson. And finally, George, we should mention the Liberal Democrats as well, who are out there and they managed to get their 20th MP when Antoinette Sandbach, a Conservative backbencher, defected to the Lib Dems late on Thursday evening. And their message so far seems to be, please take us seriously, with vans going round Westminster in circles saying, vote for Joe Swinson, our next Prime Minister, which is obviously no one really thinks that's going to be the case. Lib Dems at best seem to have a chance of getting the 50 or seats in their tally if all goes well. But they're clearly trying to push themselves forward into the debate that they are the most wholehearted supporters of Remain, not Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, the Lib Dems will do well in relatively prosperous Remain areas. I think they'll do less well in the part of the world I know quite well, the, the West Country, where it's very heavily leave and the Lib Dems found themselves in third place in a number of seats where they used to be well in contention before. So you talk to people in the Lib Dems who say, look, we can get to 45 seats on a really good night. But after that, the gradient becomes much, much harder for us. If the Lib Dems, in the unlikely scenario, they were to get to 30% in the national polls, then suddenly you'd be talking about a big switch of seats to the Liberal Democrats. But, you know, even 45 or 50 seats, given where they were a couple of years ago, would be a considerable result for them. I think the other point to bear in mind is it does rather depend on where you think Labour Party is going to end up. At the moment, the Lib Dems are doing fairly well in the polls or in the mid to high teens. That's already down a bit on where they were a few weeks ago. So you can see their vote is soft. If Jeremy Corbyn starts going up in the polls, it is going to be at the expense of the Liberal Democrats. So I think they've got an interesting pitch. They've got something to say. But this is going to be a tough election. And over six weeks, they're going to really have to slug it out. this general election, the next parliament is going to look quite different. A lot of MPs are retiring or deciding to quit politics altogether. A lot of these people who are leaving Westminster are moderate conservatives who, for whatever reason, have decided they don't feel quite at home in Boris Johnson's party. But one of the more striking things, too, has been the departure of women. The amount of female MPs have announced due to abuse and the pressures of being MP, they no longer want to be in political life. And we shouldn't forget a new Speaker of the House of Commons who will get elected on Monday. Miranda Green, this election has come at a point where it's something of an inflection moment for politics because a lot of people who have been there for a long time. We think of Ken Clark, the father of the House, who's been there since 1970, the Speaker John Burko, who's been in the chair since 2009, and lots of other veteran MPs as well. You know, David Liddington, who was Deputy Prime Minister until six months ago, and Amber Rudd, who was Home Secretary. All these people are leaving for lots of different reasons, but it does make you think, whatever happens after this election, the Conservative Party that comes back is going to be very different. The Labour Party that comes back is going to be very different, much more Corbynite. And the whole feel of the House of Commons will just be very markedly changed from the one we've seen over the past two and a half years. I completely agree about the scale of change and that the next Parliament will look, feel and probably sound quite different to this one. I'm not sure that I agree that it's a total mirror image. I think the change in the Conservative Party, OK, some of those 21 who were deprived of the whip have been let back into the party, but some of the most moderate, well-known Conservative names on the sort of one-nation tradition of Conservatism are leaving. Ken Clark, a sort of giant of the modern era of Conservative politics. Nikki Morgan, who's a very well-known female face and who's been a sort of champion of compromise. I think, in a way, the nature of the Tory party might be changed more by this election, despite the Corbynite leadership of the Labour Party, because actually we've all talked for the last three years about the deselection mania on the left 
of the Labour Party and how they wanted to kind of cleanse the Labour Party of the moderates and replace them with people in their own left image. That has actually largely failed. And I think one of the interesting things has been how many of the moderate Labour MPs are sticking it out. Gloria De Piero, who was a sort of Remain person in a leave seat, wanted to compromise. She's had enough and is standing down. But actually quite a lot of people, even people like Liz Kendall, they've seen off deselection threats. So I think it's not quite the same. I think the change in the Tory party is really, really profound and potentially, as you quite rightly say, an inflection point in our politics. Laurel Hughes, when you look at the people in the Tory party who are going, now a lot of them are saying they're just retiring. Some of them have been there for quite a long time. People like Michael Fallon, for example, who was Defence Secretary and he simply clearly decided he's not coming back to frontline politics. There's no reason to stay around. But it is striking how many of them from the One Nation group of centrist Conservatives are leaving politics. And in private, a lot of them say, well, essentially it's the direction it's going, that the ERG, the European Research Group of Brexit supporters, become increasingly powerful and expects to be even bigger after the next election. And for a lot of these people, particularly the older One Nation people, they've simply just decided that maybe the fight's not worth it. A lot of the women that have decided not to run, publicly they're citing the abuse, but privately they're saying, well, actually, abuse has been around for a very long time. They used to put up with it and you would put up with it if you believed in what you were doing. If you believed it was worth it and you believed that if you stayed, you could help bring the Tory party back into the centre that they want, they'd probably stay and fight it. But they think it might take a number of years to get back to that position. Meanwhile, their children have grown up. They're getting abuse from all angles. Very privately, they say they're uncomfortable with Boris Johnson. Over the last few months, we've seen him do some quite dramatic things that really angered female MPs. They didn't speak out publicly, but privately, very uncomfortable with the comments the Prime Minister made about Joe Cox. He said the best way to honour her death was to get Brexit done in response to a query from a Labour MP who said she was concerned at the language he was using in the context of an MP having been murdered. His response really infuriated female MPs. The kicking out of the 21, moderate Europhile MPs, they didn't like that and they're uncomfortable with what is happening And they just don't think it's worth it. So whilst they're talking about abuse, yes, it's a factor, but it's not enough of a reason to give up your calling, which is why I think a lot of Labour MPs, Labour female MPs who are suffering the same thing, they're deciding to stick it out in a way that the likes of Nicky Morgan, Amber Rudd, Seema Kennedy, Mims Davies, all these moderate women in the prime of their career are choosing to go and do something else because they think they can be more effective outside of Parliament. One thing we should note, Miranda, is that there has been a huge amount of trigger ballots in the Labour Party where lots of Labour MPs have been challenged by their local parties. A lot of them have succeeded and come out of that secure in their position. But nearly all of these Tories have decided just to go away. Like, you know, they've not been kicked out. Out of the 21 or so who were booted out for backing the Ben Act to avoid no-deal Brexit, 10 of them were let back into the party this week. And they've obviously been lots of conversations for Boris Johnson about that. But a lot of them have decided they're just not coming back at all. And there's some, you know, obviously Amber Rudd, I think, is somebody who Downing Street frequently cites as having huge amounts of frustration with because Boris Johnson took a punt at putting her in the cabinet. She then quit the cabinet and the party because she didn't like the deal. And then she backed the deal again. It's really interesting, this, because over the years... I've watched the two main parties as their powers ebb and flow. And it's always really interesting, the periods where there are a lot of capable people in that political tradition who are choosing not to be that party's MPs. And if we're going back 
to that sort of era for the Conservative Party, I think it spells danger for them in the next few years. And on the other side, some of these Labour MPs think it's worth sticking around and that they still have at least a chance to reclaim their party for a different sort of tradition of Labour politics. And also, I can't help feeling that, although clearly all of the attempts to topple Jeremy Corbyn have failed, we think he'll probably do okay in the election campaign because he's much happier as a campaigner than as a sort of prime minister in waiting in political peacetime. But even so, you know, they know that John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, really has an appetite for power. And I think some of them think if they can actually be the largest party after an election and be trying to form some government, then maybe there's some role for the moderates in the Labour Party to contribute something and to keep a Labour government or a Labour-led government on track. Also, a lot of those Labour people are very committed Remainers who don't think the fight is over for that cause as well, whereas in the other side of the mirror, in the Tory party, that cause has clearly been defeated long ago. Now, some people, Laura, do say you always get a big amount of churn at election. A lot of people do stand aside, some for private reasons, some for political reasons. And that the quantity of numbers, particularly for female MPs, is not necessarily out of line. But I think the crucial point here is that it is the calibre and the experience of some of these women. So obviously the most shocking one this week to everybody, I think, was Nikki Morgan, who is actually in the cabinet right now as culture secretary for someone who's at the top of government to announce they're just leaving everything was very surprising. I think in Nikki Morgan's case, it was very much about personal reasons. But for her, it did seem quite surprising. Number 10 was suggesting yesterday that these numbers are proportional. The number of women leaving is proportional to the number of female MPs in Parliament. But a lot of points on that. Number one, it might be proportional, but actually that's because 40% of Labour MPs are female. Only 20% of female MPs are Tories. In terms of looking at the Conservative Party, the maths doesn't work. And the point is with those that are leaving the Conservatives, a lot of the men are retiring. These women aren't retiring. They're going on to do something else. And they are these prime positions in their career for them to choose not to be cabinet ministers, not to be ministers. That's the thing. The numbers that they're losing is one thing, but it's who they're losing that's really, really worrying for number 10. And they've been pushing this message out that they have a very one nation, centre ground, conservative manifesto, because clearly they are concerned about the optics of this of women like Nikki Morgan and Amber Rudd choosing to walk away from the party, leaving it looking very, very different to that that a lot of more moderate pro-Remain conservatives might feel comfortable with. I think Boris Johnson will be pretty appalled by this because his inner strategy has always been, I think, to get Brexit delivered, have a very tough Brexit-looking party, but then pivot much more back to the sort of one-nation Tory that he was when he was London mayor. Those are his politics. He is a social liberal and he feels more comfortable, I think, at home with people like Ken Clark and Nicky Morgan than he does with Priti Patel or Dominic Raab. Yeah, and the interesting thing is who is selected to run in this election because we know that local associations tend to be a bit more pro-Brexit. So they are going to probably be asking these women who are going to replace the ones that have left what their stance is. And so we might see the women that come through being a bit more hardline and hardcore than those that have left. I've heard various reports that CCHQ, Conservatives Campaign Office, have been very much trying to intervene in local associations to make sure that the shortlists include a broad spectrum. It's not just hard Brexiters, middle-aged white men, because that's what the whole Cameron project was about, trying to change the face of that. It looks like we might be going back against all the progress that he made in modernising the party's look and feel and politics. That is the key point, Seb, isn't it? It's whether the Tory party is accidentally 
accidentally retoxifying after the elaborate David Cameron attempt to detoxify. We shouldn't also forget that Boris Johnson polls quite badly with female voters. It's a notable difference in his approval ratings on a whole bunch of different factors. So seeing all these Tory women leave isn't great for them in that way. In a way, I'm surprised that Number 10 decided to argue the toss over whether it was a good or bad thing, as Laura has said, rather than acknowledging in a way that they've got a problem and trying to do something about it. In a similar vein, that afternoon in which Boris Johnson decided to dismiss the concerns of female MPs about their own safety, about threats against their families as humbug, was a real misjudgment. It was the wrong tone. Even if the people around him don't care about this stuff, he personally needs to realise that the fate of his premiership longer term and of his party rests on whether he can get a grip over his pitch and his appeal. And finally, briefly, Laura, the other thing that's going to change next Parliament is the Speaker. John Burko said a long farewell this week with everyone paying tribute to him for his 10 years in the chair. And we've talked about his legacy many times before, that he's been a very empowering Speaker to back benches, to ensuring that the Commons is the cockpit of the country again. His critics say that his manner can be somewhat abrasive. And of course, there's been these allegations of bullying that have never been fully resolved. But the contest is taking place on Monday for a new Speaker. And it's quite odd that this outgoing parliament, its last act is going to be to choose the next speaker. And the favourite seems to be Lindsay Hoyle, who's currently deputy speaker, a Labour MP, seems pretty popular and managed to boost his standing, particularly with Conservatives, with his actions this week. Yes, he chose not to accept amendments from the opposition parties that would expand the franchise to give votes to EU citizens and 16 to 17 year olds. He played his cards quite well there. And I think we can expect the next speaker is going to be a lot less exciting than John Burko will probably seek to be a bit more boring and moderate and calm after John Burko really did make quite an impression on this parliament in ways that were good, in ways that were incredibly bad. You referenced bullying allegations, which he has, of course, denied. So it will be interesting to see who parliament picks. It might be a story that doesn't go on for very long because I think the public will possibly switch off from a less exciting character than John Burko himself. Indeed. And when we look at the other candidates, Miranda, obviously Harry Harmon, the former Deputy Labour leader, is a prominent candidate. Eleanor Lang, who is a Conservative, strong Brexiter, who is another Deputy Speaker. There's a lot of Tories who are backing her, but at the moment it does feel a bit like Lindsay Hoyle's to lose. You can argue that Burkow overplayed his hand and by seeking to become the international celebrity that he has through his extraordinary diction, etc., picked a fight with the governing party too many times and hence his unpopularity with two successive, three successive Conservative Prime Ministers now. On the other hand, we're discussing how Parliament might change after the election, actually having a powerful speaker sticking up for the representatives of the people against an executive which, quite frankly, has been throwing its weight about too much is quite important. So even though I have my doubts about this whole celebrity speaker thing that we've had in the last few years, it's important to have a figure there who has the guts to stick up for Parliament against ministers who want to throw their weight about. And I think when you look at the candidates, that is one of the key factors, that you've got to have somebody who is politically neutral as far as they can be, because one thing that Mr Burko did do was, and I think it was Bernard Jenkin who put this, that all of his decisions tended to lean in favour of the Remain cause. And a lot of the things that were done, for example, allowing various emergency debates, certainly helped further the Remain course more than the Brexit course. And whatever happens in this next parliament, it's still going to be split between Remain and Leave, and it will need somebody who can bring 
both those sides together, which is not an easy task. No, and there's also the unfinished business, which is important business, of kind of cleaning up Parliament. Mm. These allegations of bullying, the Me Too aspect of what's been exposed in the Commons and the Lords over the last couple of years. And actually things like the case of Keith Vaz, which in the last few days has caused enormous controversy as to whether he has been suspended for long enough, whether he can stand again as an MP. That's a really important agenda for the incoming Speaker as well, how Parliament is viewed and whether it's atmosphere and the rules that govern working inside the Palace of Westminster are as tough as they should be. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert, Laura and Miranda for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our late subscription offers. You know where to find them, ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Owen McSweeney. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.